This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. Uh, It's my third time trying the intro, but that's all right. I won't mess it up this time, hopefully. I'm so excited to be joined today by Andy Kolber. Andy is a trauma-informed therapist, speaker, and writer in Castle Rock, Colorado. She's been published with Relevant, Christianity Today Women, Huffington Post, Encourage, and more. She's currently in the process of writing her first book, which focuses on experiencing wholeness through the intersection of faith and psychology, and we'll give you a bunch of places to connect with her at the end. Andy, how are you doing today? I am doing really well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Sorry you had to listen to me say the intro three times, but that's all right. We got there. No, it's 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 great. It's wonderful. Uh, so tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself. Obviously, I gave kind of your formal bio there, but uh, what, what should we know about you? Yeah. Um, well, I have been a therapist for about 10 years now. Um, I went to Denver Seminary for my formal education, and um, and so that or for my grad school. And so that has really been a huge help to me in terms of um, looking at one of the, you know, one of my interests is integrating faith and psychology. Um, So I've been super grateful for the education I received through that. And so, so in addition to doing trauma-informed work, um, you know, part of what I try to do when clients, when it's helpful for them is to help them look at how their faith can be a resource for them. And so that's a really big part of my passions. Not, not every client I work with um, is, is a Christian, and so that's not always part of our work, and that's totally okay too. Um, and then in addition to that, I have two kiddos, and I'm married. And yeah, I come from kind of a background where I've experienced a decent amount of um, what is called attachment trauma, and so that has definitely been a part of my journey and my story of why I'm so passionate about helping people experience healing and wholeness. Yeah. So will you tell us a little bit more about that when you talk about your own background? Typically, my standard first question is, how did you get into what you do today? Obviously, some of your personal story impacts that. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I was raised in a really loving family, but there was some pretty significant dysfunction. And I try to be very gentle um, with the way that I tell it just because I, I have four other siblings um, and both my parents. And um, and so why I say that is because I definitely want to honor the parts of my story that there is some pretty significant um, attachment trauma, but also there are parts I don't always talk about because so many other people are involved. But the the general background to it is that my mom is a recovering alcoholic, and then my dad also has really significant mental health issues. And some of those he's really chosen not to um, basically pursue or work on. And so that has really affected mine and my siblings' life and has been a big part of learning about how to set healthy boundaries when people don't want to do their work. Yeah. And that's been a huge part of 
you know, really also from a faith perspective, really wrestling with that and really kind of wrestling with God about what does that look like to be healthy, um, to honor my parents while also honoring that God didn't make me to experience abuse either. And so it's been quite a journey. Um, so that, so all that to say, that's kind of the first piece. And so, um, because of that background, I um, originally wanted to be a social justice lawyer. <laughs> I'm kind okay. of a fiery person. And what I realized as I finished up with undergrad, um, my background is in business for undergrad, is that that's just not where I wanted to be. Like I just realized that I connected with people on such an emotional level that while I appreciated that advocacy, that wasn't, that wasn't where really addressing the problem and so ultimately, just through a lot of prayer and through a lot of searching, I realized that I wanted to become a therapist. And yeah. so, yeah, so I pursued going to Denver Seminary and it was, it honestly, my time at seminary, I know it's not true for everybody and their experiences, but it was so incredibly helpful and healing because I was able to really begin to do a lot of my own work and really begin to see like, wow. I got some, I got some stuff to do, you know, and that I think ultimately has, um, I hope, and I believe has made me a better therapist because of really owning my story. Yeah. I think a lot of people that I know, and I know it's true for me as well, when they get into either a helping profession or just mental health advocacy, kind of the more that you, or even ministry, the more that you go down like a, Hey, I want to help people, the more that you're encountered with or face to face with kind of your own stuff. And you think, Hey, I can't do this effectively unless I kind of know where I'm coming from, which I mean, I think is kind of what you're talking about there. Absolutely. I mean, I always say to um, therapists who are who are kind of starting the process, or maybe even just considering um, going to grad school, just to to have the courage to do your own work. You know, like you just yeah. can't take people where you haven't been, and that doesn't mm-hmm. mean we have to be perfect. You know, I think that's something that as therapists we have to um, we have to be careful. Like we're just people too. Um, however, you know, I think there is something about the willingness to be in process that people can sense that they know when they're, when you're open to the work of being a person and when you're shut down to that, when you're like, Nope, I'm done. (laughs) This is as far as I want to go. Um, people, people experience that too, you know? And I think, I think that directly affects your therapy for sure. Yeah. Okay, so I have a couple things that I want to go back and touch on from what you've said so far. Uh, But one of them that stuck out to me, you said you started out wanting to be a social justice lawyer. Yes. Which I think is so cool because I I think about this often, and maybe it's just that a lot of the people that I connect with in kind of the therapy social work world are this way. And I know it's true for me that I'm also passionate about social justice type issues. Mm -hmm. And I think there's so much overlap there because uh, even when I think about mental health and we we talk about stigma and and being better at as a culture, it it is a, a social justice issue to me. There's so many similarities of fighting for people and fighting for people to get treatment and, and, to be treated equally and things like that. I mean, do you see a lot of overlap Mm -hmm. in those areas and passions of yours? Yeah, I mean, I do. And what has been really cool to see is how that has begin, has begun to come full circle for me. I mean, I think that is really why I started to write more. Um, 
partially that started out as just this undercurrent within me. You know, I'd been a therapist for about six years and I started my, you know, I started my little blog, Bravely Imperfect, not even really sure why, (laughs) but just knowing like there were some other things I needed to say and I needed to be able to say them um, in a different platform than therapy. But it really, really overlapped with my therapeutic skills, meaning so many of the things that I was writing about came from a place where it was informed by my therapy, by what I had learned as a therapist, by my own spiritual formation and my integration. And, you know, as a therapist, one of the things that's so important is that the space with your client is really about them, right? Mm, And so when you're a therapist and you have some things that you care about, that isn't the time for you put that on your client, you know, right. it's, that's a time to create a space to hold for them. And so what I began to see is that I appreciated and wanted to hold space for people, but also I needed to honor this other part of myself that wanted to educate and yeah. advocate for people. And so to, you know, to kind of come back to your question, I feel like, you know, a lot of my passion as it's begun to develop is to see specifically Christians become more educated around mental health and even more specifically around trauma. Um, I see, you know, and and probably everybody has their bias in terms of what their passion is, but, you know, I don't think it's just folks who've experienced PTSD who need to be educated on this. I think this is honestly, this this is a social justice issue. We are living in a time in which vicarious trauma is so common, you know, with social media and the things that are happening in our world. And the principles of, you know, processing trauma are are similar, whether you've experienced PTSD, or whether you're just trying to process an emotion. Yeah, the the core parts of it are learning how to be (laughs) with difficult things. Yeah. And so my heart and my passion is to educate folks and to really see people who've not, you know, they have maybe this desire to learn, but they've never been given maybe the tools or maybe no, someone has never given them the words, you know? And so, um, all that to say that social justice piece, I think it absolutely is coming up for me more and more. And what I'm finding is that it's becoming more integrated with my skill set now as a therapist and it makes me really excited actually to see how God's using that. Yeah. So I want to ask about a couple different types of trauma that you've mentioned because most Mm -hmm. folks listening Mm -hmm. have mostly heard trauma maybe in the sense of PTSD and they think about someone who's been to war or experienced a terrorist attack or something big like that, which obviously those are very much trauma, but you've mentioned attachment trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, You've you've mentioned, I think exposure trauma, right? People just watching things, trying to process what's happening in the world. Vicarious. Yeah, Mm -hmm. there you go. Mm -hmm. Will you explain some of that? I mean, start with attachment trauma. What Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Yep. So attachment trauma, actually, let me back up just one more second, okay. because I think it's important to say in the, the DSM, the current DSM-5 has a, a somewhat narrow definition. Um, I think most practitioners would agree that the, the definition of trauma, um, especially PTSD, it's fairly narrow. And so I want to honor that that's true just because the DSM is what a lot of folks use to diagnose. 
However, before um, DSM-5 came out, there was just a tremendous amount of discussion and I would even say arguments, you know, I, reading Bessel van der Kolk even more, he talks about how much there was a lot of push for there to be more within the DSM yeah. that basically diagnosed more specifically things like um, what is called complex PTSD. Yeah. And so I'm going to use that as a bridge for talking well, even, about attachment trauma. Even in the, in the back, in like the not formal diagnosis part, but in the back, there's, you know, other factors to be considered, which, right. I mean, there's a ton of things in there that fall under probably the umbrella of what we're talking about of some kind of trauma, but that for one mm -hmm. reason, reason or another didn't make it into the formal diagnosis part. But I mean, they're in there as things to be considered in a therapeutic setting. Absolutely. Yep. And I think... You know, the longer that I am working with other within the trauma world, even more as an, um, a niche, and as I have had just experiences of my own, I think most people would agree that p trauma is mostly based off of someone's own perception of the experience. Mm -hmm. um, however, you know, for diagnostic diagnostic reasons, they I understand that there needs to be sort of specific ramification, you know, sort of guidelines. Right. right. Um, there. So to step back and then go ahead and answer your question, <laughs> uh, attachment trauma is the understanding of it is, is when mainly when our, our parents or caregivers have, um, you know, we look to our parents or caregivers when we're from, from like our infant stages to help us begin to sort of figure out and regulate the world. And so what that means is we, you know, babies on their own, um, essentially, you know, they can't survive. They, they need touch. They need um, another person's sort of reciprocation of emotions and um, love to continue to develop. And that happens, um, you know, all through our lives. But really one of the most important stages um, is is definitely up through like zero to 12 and definitely teenage years matters too. Yeah. But those early years are literally so essential. And, you know, our brain is developing at just crazy fast rates. And so there's just a lot going on just in our neurobiology that really matters. And so attachment trauma is when one of your caregivers is, isn't able to provide the, sort of the care or the maybe the trust that is needed. Yeah. Um, and, and so what's a part of that is something called attunement. And so at its basic form, attunement is when somebody responds to your need. And so this is, this is especially important when, when kiddos are really, really small. And so through the lifespan, um, when a caregiver does something that is a significant injury to that trust and they don't do something to repair the trust, right? So this doesn't mean that parents need to be perfect. In fact, that's not even helpful. Um, <laughs> I think it's Dan Siegel who says only 50% of the time parents need to get it right. Meaning this is not, this is like, that's a pretty low percentile, right? To, to do that, um, to, to basically be parenting um, well. To be That's very reassuring. I'm about to have my, yeah. my first child uh, in oh, the next couple yes. months. That's very reassuring. Yeah. So it's not about being perfect, but 
So for me, growing up in, in like in a family where there was like significant mental health and addiction, there was um, several significant things that happened in my life where there was no repair. It doesn't have to be specific to you, but can you give an example, like a hypothetical example yeah. of, of what you're talking about? Sure. So like a, a hypothetical would be like uh, maybe let's say a mom who has such significant anxiety and maybe she really is trying her best, you know, and so I would just want to honor that. But because she's so um, wrapped up in her internal experience, she's not attending to the attunement of, of her kiddo. And so maybe on like multiple occasions, there, there begins to be a dynamic where the kids, the kid has a need that is not being paid attention to at all. And so what that begins to, to then create the inner narrative for the child begins to be, um, my needs aren't going to be met if I ask. And so it's this, again, this is not like every once in a while you're on your phone and you miss what your kid said, or even one out of two times, you know what I mean? This is, this becomes the way it is. Yeah. And so like, or another example would be like, let's take a kiddo who maybe has been in foster care or um, maybe they're coming out of a home where there is um, severe poverty, there is um, rampant physical abuse. And in that case, they, they then would begin to internalize that world at from a place of, is it even, is it worth it to even express that I have needs? You know, there are times when really young kids will stop crying at all or asking for things because they've just found that those needs don't get met. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, So, so attachment trauma, there's a wide range um, of, of, of like, it can be a really severe, um, like I, I would say it can go from attachment injury all the way to, to severe attachment trauma. And so I guess I say that like, that's a spectrum. Many folks can have an injury, but that can later be repaired through connecting with someone um, who is who becomes their new sort of um, safe connection. And so that's very normal. Like most people, as they as they um, mature, they then might have a romantic partner or a really healthy friend, someone that when they're with them, they feel really safe. Yeah. That is the core of attachment is that when you are with that person and really ultimately, ideally, it starts with your caregiver, you learn your body literally um, regulates down. So like if you're sad, you might feel start to feel better or feel like it's okay to cry. If you're anxious, your heart rate might actually begin to lower because that person, you are in the presence of something that feels safe. Yeah. Um, and so I could go a lot of, so at its core, <laughs> attachment <laughs> and attachment trauma is when um, the person that you depend on to be safe isn't safe for you. Yeah. So can faith play a role in that? Because uh, you're talking about attachment and, and not mm-hmm. having, you know, somewhere where you feel safe, somewhere where you feel valued, like your needs matter, right? And those are all yeah. things that most people who work in a church or a ministry or even have, you know, a, a set of beliefs would say that those seem like things that a faith aspect could 
help could improve something like that? Yes, that's a great question. And actually something I'm really passionate about, um, because it's it's something I'm actually writing about in, in the book that I'm working on. But the answer to your question is, is yes, faith absolutely can play a role for better, for worse. Um, ideally it is our, we, we hope that our faith can be a resource to us. And, you know, I often say in my biased opinion, I believe it's the best resource we have. Um, it's the, it's the truest, it's the, it's the safest. Um, my, like, for example, my personal um, experience of Jesus has been one of the most healing parts of my own recovery um, was experiencing God in a safe way. Yeah. And so what's really cool is that there have been studies that have actually shown um, that have been have measured how someone's attachment um, to God can can be can become their new safe attachment. And clinically, that's called earned attachment. So when someone has an, a significant attachment injury when they're young, um, and then they get older and they, they decide to work on that, and then they then um, sort of get to a place where their attachment style becomes safe, that's called earned attachment. And it's so neat to see that there, you know, that we have basically data to show that God um, has been that for many people. And, yeah. and many people have experienced God in that way to sort of be the healing catalyst for their attachment style um, to heal. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think the hard part to that is that there are many folks and I, you know, I've worked with many and, and I've definitely touched on some of this myself where church hasn't always been safe for them. Yeah. Um, sometimes church has been part of what has actually wounded them. And so when that happens, there, the work, um, the work is, is doable, but it's, you know, it's, it's complicated because the question becomes, how do you hold the resource of your faith, but not allow it to also continue to harm you? The parts that have been harmful, how do we um, move past those pieces? And so I think the good news is, is that it's possible. Mm. And, um, and I think that's God's at heart for us, you know, mm. um, because that is, in my opinion, that's, that's really who he is, is that we, he longs for us to experience wholeness. And so all of us have different woundings. Um, and I think, you know, some, it, it just depends, um, what that sort of template of woundedness looks like for each of us. Hmm. So good. So what about, well, before I get to that, I guess. So mm-hmm. if I'm just a normal person and I go to a church or I work in a church or I go to a ministry or I work in a ministry or I just really want to love people well, what can I do to help people if, I mean, obviously I'm not going to walk around and diagnose Mm-hmm. You know, hey, you seem like you have attachment trauma, but I mean, right. is is the main goal there just to provide spaces that are safe and that mm. do what they say they're going to do and, you know, provide for needs? I mean, is that is that yeah. kind of our goal in this? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, 
I think, so first, sorry for I just beaten on this drum, but I think that's why being trauma-informed matters. Yeah. First of all, and this is why it matters for our churches, is that we've got so many folks, <laughs> so many folks. I think the statistics I saw most recently are like 45% of Americans have an unsafe attachment style or an in, it's called Gosh. an insecure attachment style. Yeah. And so there's a really big range within that. Like you can have some attachment injury and not have it be in some ways, I guess, as as significant. But what I want to underscore there is that it all plays into our relational styles. So when you talk about 45%, I mean, holy moly, right? So, so first of all, just to understand the, the physiology of trauma is, is just a, a piece of that. Because when we understand like even common language, like, Hey, I'm triggered right now. (laughs) Like maybe I'm a staff person and I begin to have self-awareness, like I'm triggered. And this is probably a place for me to actually do some things to help myself get to a place where I'm no longer triggered before I speak to this issue with this person, right? So even super basic things that that bring self-awareness for folks themselves who work in churches is really huge because unfortunately... Sometimes because we don't know better, we can sometimes perpetuate harm because we're just not in touch with our own wounds. We're not in touch with our own story to enough to know how we may even hurt someone else. Yeah. So I think that's one piece of it. Um, I, the second part that what you were saying is, you know, how do we, you know, what is, what is the practicality of this? And I think what you're saying is exactly right in terms of, creating safety, you know, and creating safety often comes from, again, stepping back and saying, what does this look like for a person who walks in from X background? And it's not to say that, you know, I think there's just an element of, of just consideration and self-observation that, that, um, that goes into that, you know, like, let me, like an example of that would be, Um, you know, I think about someone who maybe has experienced like domestic abuse, for example, and they walk into a church and maybe this church for whatever reason, and, and, and it's not even out of any type of bad intention, but maybe their language about how they're talking about, um, the church being the, the bride, maybe there are some things that sometimes can feel, um, a little bit, you know, I don't want to use the word submissive like it's a it's necessarily a bad thing. But there are times when our language around things like marriage and how you live out of that place could be really scary or triggering for someone with that yeah. kind of background. Yeah. So I guess all that to say it's it's considering like, hey, what um, with that again, that trauma informed piece of saying, you know, what might like this look like? for a person from this type of background. And if a church doesn't know, gosh, it would be wonderful to get some extra consultation, you know, from from folks who do specialize in those things to say, hey, can you give us some feedback here? Yeah. Or can you help us get some better understanding in this area? Yeah, I've I've written a couple times about like 
the language use, like how to make your church more mental health friendly or things like that. And I know mm-hmm. every time I write it, I just know that somebody on the internet is going to have like a rage fit of, <laughs> I, gosh, I hate PC culture. And every time I right. include something about like, the point isn't that we're not trying to offend people. Like, I don't care. The point is that we want to create places where people feel safe, where people feel like yeah. you're not minimizing their pain. You know, like it's not yeah. about quote unquote PC culture. It's about like, how do we actually create spaces for people where they do feel loved, they do feel valued, they do feel like their needs matter, they do feel like their pain matters, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that's huge. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think ultimately too, it's really honoring the fact that you're going to mess up and then really having humility to hear. <laughs> like, hey, like, so a person in the congregation hears something and it's hard. Are you a church who's willing to hear that? Hmm. Can you um, have a posture that says, wow, I didn't, I didn't realize that would be that hard. You know, yeah. I didn't realize. And, it, and again, it's, it's not that that original statement or whatever is the one doing the original wounding. Right. Um, however, it is, it is being a place where it's like, is this a place where we are actually helping you heal or do, or do you survivor need to walk in here um, on guard? Yeah. Is your, is your nervous system so geared up every time you had come into church because you're not sure where you're going to, um, where you're going to get a shot across your bow? Yeah. You know, and I think unfortunately there are a lot of folks coming from that place where they, they don't feel safe, not because they don't want to. And I think that's really important. You yeah. know, it's not about, and that's really important about trauma in general is that it is a physiological response to perceived threat. Yeah. Right. And right. so this is not a, this is, this is not our brain being like, Hey, you know what? I'd like to pick a fight today. Right. <laughs> this is our body saying this feels familiar and dangerous. And so my fight or flight response is tur- or freeze response is turning on because I feel, I feel threatened. Yeah. And so, you know, I think this is a, it's a, it's a tough line to walk because no church is going to be perfect and that is okay. You know, there's so much room for grace, but is there room to, to grow in that area too, especially in a culture in which trauma is super, like it is, like I mentioned the vicarious trauma, which is essentially watching someone else's trauma. Right. And that experience then, um, having the effect of then us experience some of the trauma response, even though we ourselves didn't go through the the, the original trauma. So I was going to ask about that because mm-hmm. it seems like that is, and I, I could be wrong, but it seems like that is almost where we all perpetually are these days. And I, you know, <laughs> I hate when people say like these days, but it, it, there is this thing where we all, you know, the news and our Twitter feeds and everything is constantly typically some type of like pretty negative news, right? Where we're just seeing, we can see images from anything bad that happens at any point in the world within 30 seconds. Right. What impact does that have on, I mean, I know that like personally I've tried to cut back on, you know, which, which Mm -hmm. news things I follow on Twitter or how much time I spend because I just, you know, I get frustrated or, you know, it, I can tell that it gets me worked up. I mean, what kind of response or what kind of impact does that have on us just day to day? Yeah, I mean, I think that that absolutely gears up 
you know, our nervous system. And, and, and I think the thing that tends to be true is that people with more of a history of trauma are going to respond. They're going to get ramped up even more essentially. Um, but I do believe that we can go from a place where maybe, you know, we've had that, you know, our parents have parented us, you know, in that average way, good enough parenting. We've had, you know, um, fairly secure relationships, all those, but, but just the existence of seeing so much pain that in and of itself can, can create a feeling of powerlessness. And that is a central component of trauma is when you feel like you don't have any power and when you feel, um, overwhelmed what the, one of the central, you know, inner working workings of trauma is that our body um, is so overwhelmed by the by the experience that we are not able to act in a way um, that ultimately sort of like basically we get that trauma gets stuck in our body because we can't help ourselves. Um, right. That's where the powerlessness comes from. So all that to say, I think just for the average person taking in and getting, you know, sort of stuck in the news cycle and the social media um, cycle can essentially maybe not full on PTSD, but what it can do is create a trauma response in your body, meaning heart rate gets activated. Um, we feel maybe it means you're anxious or tense um, and you don't even know why. It might mean, you know, an ambivalence towards your phone, but also a need to go towards it. You know, like there's this feeling of like, not, not like I always call it, it's our higher order thinking. And that's basically, um, our prefrontal cortex, um, is where the part of our brain that has really our best resources, you know, all those parts of ourselves that were like, man, I wish I would have had that factual resource when I was making that stupid decision, you know, (laughs) but like when we are essentially what I'll I'll call triggered, when we're activated, that part of our brain shuts down. Like we don't have as much access to it. We're living from what's called the lower part of our brain or like the amygdala. And that's our, it's a really young part of our brain. And that is all about survival. And so when you're living out of that, first of all, it's exhausting right? Your nervous system, it's like riding a roller coaster. Um, or I'll sometimes say it's like your, it's like your nervous system ran a marathon today, right? you know? And so if you're finding, you know, if you're listening to this and you're finding that you're exhausted all the time and emotionally worn out, it, it could be because of the overwhelm. Um, and if you're really connected, um, almost, I would say over connected to everything that's going on in the culture and everything that's going on on social media. And, and again, it's like there's maybe even that advocacy or social justice piece, but it's super incredibly easy to burn out. Um, if that's not, if, if there is not a self-regulation piece that comes into it, because basically we're always, um, living out of fight or flight. Right. I believe that by telling our stories, we set other people free to tell their own. 
My name is Kevin Miguel Garcia, and I am the host of independent podcast, A Tiny Revolution. And just about every week, I'll introduce you to my friends who are doing amazing things at the intersections of faith, sexuality, racial justice, gender identity, and more. We'll have conversations that celebrate our everyday victories, stories that engage with conversations we so desperately need to be having, stories that are going to make you say me too, and stories of just ordinary people doing extraordinary things. If you're looking for something to inspire hope, if you're looking to find words to all the things you've been feeling recently, join me for a tiny revolution, because honestly, all revolutions just start out as conversations between friends. You can find A Tiny Revolution on YouTube, the Apple Podcast app, and at thekevingarcia.com. So you've you've mentioned uh, a couple things that, I don't know if you got them there, but I know that you also you know read them there out of The Body Keeps the Score. Mm-hmm. Which I have to tell you, I've been trying to work my way through, and uh, we interacted about it, and you said that you had to take it in chunks because it was pretty dense, <laughs> yeah. and it made me feel so like I literally I was to my wife I was like oh man like she does trauma and she had to take it in chunks so like it makes me feel so much better that I could like I got to read a bit and then like stop for a bit and then try to mm-hmm. uh, but it is so good so much about uh, for listeners it's a book about how trauma impacts the body and how they're connected and things like that. Really yeah. fantastic resource. I know. I was talking to Steve Austin, the uh, he used to be the host, the co-host of the show about it, and mm. he found on Amazon like a, a partner guide. It's like a book where they just pulled mm. out like the big points of it. So if uh, mm-hmm. if that sounds interesting to you, but you don't want to work your way through a dense book, you can grab that instead. Yeah, I didn't even know about that. That sounds like I mean that was a great resource because it is it is pretty dense. Yeah. But honestly, as as a a trauma worker, it literally makes me so excited that yeah. there is this body of work that's accessible and that people I've seen a lot of Christians that I know who are actually pretty interested and excited about it. And that, that makes me so excited. Like I geek out about that, you know? Yeah. I actually, I actually first heard of it because the ministry that my wife works for, they had a counselor come in and talk to them about some stuff and she told them about it. And so she came home and told me about it. So I actually first heard of it through a counselor talking to a campus ministry. So Mm, that's great. I love to hear that. Okay. So what about the one type of trauma, or I guess not the one type, but kind of the big one that we all immediately think of. I mean, if somebody has experienced some type of abuse or uh, some type of, of, they were mugged or some type of violence or some type of, I I don't know, any of these bigger things. So, yeah. So um, I think you're referring to PTSD. Um, Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Just, I mean, some of the I don't want to say bigger traumas because that sounds like I'm ranking them and I'm I'm not. But the ones that we all think of, right? You've exper- you've lived through yeah. a hurricane or somebody broke into your house and beat you up or you've been in a domestic violence. So the types that would in the DSM-5 kind of fall under PTSD, but type, things like that. Yep. So essentially with PTSD and one of the reasons why I I tend to say it is a little bit narrow in it, in how it's defined, is that um, it's defined as when you or someone close to you or you're viewing someone um, is in a place where, like, basically you are threatened by death. Um, And so, like, the, the belief, you know, your body goes into the belief that you are now going to die. Or again, viewing someone um, where that is happening to, and so you know that is where 
you know, really severe, um, like physical abuse. Um, I mean, it can, it can be rape. It's definitely tends to be true, um, for veterans. Um, I think that, you know, it's any place where the, that, that there can be like essentially that violent component yeah. or, you know, this is also where, um, like a car accident could be, um, you know, like in the practice of, I do, I practice something called it's called EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing is what that is. And, you know, we call that a single event trauma. And what that means is, is that there is one major event and, and oftentimes that can be PTSD. Um, it's something that has caused, gone on to cause PTSD that, um, that is then processed through. Now, you know, there are folks who, would meet the same criteria, but they have been, um, in a situation that, um, maybe it has been, it's been repetitive. And so that's where, that's where, again, the DSM doesn't define it as complex PTSD. And I think that trauma professionals would advocate that that is a real thing, that it's not just a single event situation, that there is, um, it makes it, I will say this, it makes it much more complicated. And that's where, you know, people who've grown up um, with pretty severe psychological abuse, it it um, doesn't necessarily, again, fit the criteria of the DSM PTSD, but they will have all the criteria of PTSD otherwise, yeah. in, meaning their body experiences it as PTSD. Yeah. And so... So all that to say, you know, part of the way I think, though, to delineate those things is basically what's called big T trauma versus little t trauma. Hmm. And and I think that's a really helpful way to talk about it, because big T trauma is basically PTSD, events that would cause PTSD. And little t trauma are events that create what is called what I would call a disturbance in your body, meaning it does affect you're functioning and it's affecting your well-being. Um, you know, it can be things like divorces or infidelity or, um, you know, I think grief can go both ways. It can, it can turn into PTSD or it can be a little T trauma. I mean, that's a very based off a person's experience of how they're going through the pain. Um, but, but what I would say is that a lot of people have a lot, have little T traumas. Um, many clients that I've worked to come to me, not because of PTSD, but because of little T traumas. However, they are pretty significant still in their lives. And so they wouldn't necessarily fit the criteria for full on PTSD, but it takes a lot of courage for them still to do the work of of processing that pain and, and that disturbance. Yeah, you said something. Uh, you've mentioned something a, a couple times there, which I think is really important. That it it's based largely on the individual's perception, right? So if you and I yeah. go, you and I experience the same thing, our reactions could be entirely different, right? Absolutely. Yep. And I think that's a really in- important component, you know. And I think of you as as you're about to welcome your first child, um, and and for me, like as a I'm a I have two kiddos, and as you know, I think there is such a thing as really understanding 
trauma-informed parenting. Because I think a lot Mm. of this, um, a lot of these tools can actually be taught as we parent. And and it's so basic. It's the willingness to feel our feelings. Yeah. You know, trauma um, gets worse by avoidance. And so meaning the reason why the trauma originally gets stuck in our body is because we essentially don't this sounds like kind of funny wording, but it's called move it, like move it through your body, which is basically a funny way of saying, feel the feelings, cry, yell, whatever it is, whatever the thing is that you need to be able to keep moving through instead of like putting it in a mental compartment in the back of wherever and being like, I'm never going to touch that because it feels too scary. Right. And so when kiddos learn how to be with their feelings, they are actually more prepared to deal with any trauma that might come their way, whether it be a big T trauma or a little T trauma. Yeah. Um, they will be more resilient. Um, go ahead. No, no, I think that's that's so important to recognize even, I mean, for ourselves to just honestly feel our feelings and experience things, but for being on the other side of somebody, you know, I, I see so often, you know, somebody says, Hey, this thing really hurt me. This thing really, whatever it is. And then somebody else comes along, especially on the internet. Cause that's just what the internet does. But somebody comes along and <laughs> says, Hey, that's not a big deal. You shouldn't be upset about this, which, <laughs> you know, kind of reinforces this. And unfortunately we see it in Christian circles and things like that. You know, Hey, you shouldn't yeah. be upset about this. If you, if you know God, you know, you should only feel joy or whatever, whatever it is, but mm-hmm. that furthers the pain that compounds the pain. Cause then you're saying, Hey, lock that away and don't experience it. But I mean, like you're saying here, that makes it worse because then you're, you're less resilient. You're more reactive, right? You're essentially doubling down on the trauma of something has happened to you and you can't express that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of what you're really talking about is shaming, you know, and, and shaming yeah. someone for having an experience. Yeah. And, and I think, like, again, going back to the parenting, um, it, it's interesting how these things build on each other, right? Like, mm. when we have a home where we are shamed for our, our feelings and our experience, we grow up believing there's only one acceptable type of experience or mm. whatever type of experience is praised. And right. that's, what we, that's what we aim for. And then we cut off anything that doesn't feel acceptable. And we say, you know what? You're not allowed here. You're bad. And so that becomes a really big issue when all, like let's say we have a group of people who have all that background (laughs) and they all get together and they say, hey, here's the only type of experience that's acceptable. Anyone who has a different type of experience will be shamed for that experience. Yeah. So you think about that and you're like, wow, well that is a breeding ground for trauma. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, really, and, and the thing is, is that sometimes, you know, we go back, we were talking about this idea of perception and part of the thing with, with that, with perception is, is that the less tools you have for hard things, the more it will affect you when you go through any type of hard thing, big T trauma or little T trauma, but you've never been given any tools for that. It will, it will cause any of us to get more stuck. And, and that's a phrase I often use to know if something feels traumatic in any sense of the word mm. is if it feels stuck. Yeah. 
meaning does it change? Yeah. Is it, is it, um, does it feel like it never moves? Does it never, like, are you never able to grieve it? Does yeah. it never, um, maybe, you know, I think it's like that element of, again, you know, I'm kind of using this very body language of moving through, like it's moving the trauma through. And so that's the whole key is that if the trauma is continued to be stuck, we, we avoid it and we're like, we're just going to leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I don't really like, it's just too much work. It's too uncomfortable. It's too painful, which the reality is that it is hard and it is painful yeah. and it takes a lot of courage. Um, but when we have good support and when we have tools, we begin to say, you know what? I can do this hard thing. I can grieve this thing that is stuck. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's a really helpful assessment. You know, if, if someone is listening is, you know, is there this thing that it do, time doesn't touch it? You know what I mean? Like yeah. it feels like it's the same as it was you know, now as it was 10 years ago, that's a good indicator that something, you know, maybe it's a little T trauma even, but it, it just, it's something that always comes up. Yeah. And, and it feels like you can maybe never quite get past it. So how do we, as a culture or as a church or as a ministry or as just a group of people or as individual, how do we support people better? How do we help either on the front end kind of help prepare people. I mean, you're talking about having tools for hard times or on the back end kind of re-equip people. How do we, how do we do better at this? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's several things, you know, and uh, in that article I wrote recently for relevant, you know, and again, it kind of touches on what we talked about earlier. Um, But, but really at its core, and I know this sounds so simple, but, you know, I think it's so important not to negate the importance is creating safety. Yeah. I mean, you know, that one of the quotes that I use in that article is by Bessel van der Kolk. Actually, I think I have it here. Um, and I just, I'm going to read it because I just, I think it's just so right on. He says, being able to feel safe with other people is probably the single most important aspect of mental health. Numerous studies of disaster response around the globe have shown that social support is the most powerful protection against becoming overwhelmed by stress and trauma. For our physiology to calm down, heal and grow, we need a visceral feeling of safety. I know for a fact that that is underlined in my copy of that book. (laughs) (laughs) So good. I mean, it's just, and that's such a, I mean, that's just a mental health statement in general, you know, but I think especially specific to trauma, it's like folks who have experienced or are at risk for trauma, they, um, the, the most essential piece is feeling, is a visceral feeling of safety. And there's a really important difference between someone saying, hey, you're safe here. And then they go and shame someone, you know, for messing up. Right. <laughs> so that's not safe, right? Or someone says, hey, here's what I'm struggling with. And they say, hey, let me tell you how to fix that. Instead right. of saying, would you like feedback or ideas on how to fix that? Right? Because yeah. that changes the game. Then the person has a choice right. um, to say, you know what? I don't think I'm there yet. Yeah. I just need you to just be here with me. Yeah. Um, or, you know, I think 
Yeah, I mean, again, I I think the shame piece is just so huge. Yeah. You know, like shame is such a huge part of what keeps people stuck in their trauma. Because most folks, and especially folks when, you know, who maybe are especially folks who've grown up with trauma um in their families, maybe like a like a high element of shame. Um they were they were shamed frequently and often for having any kind of feelings for um, those types of things, those people who've experienced that are more at risk for trauma because they don't know how to be with feelings or hard things. Um, and so a church culture that does the same thing will perpetuate the trauma. Mm. And so, you know, I would say in addition to feel safe, I would say, what does it look like to have shame and practice shame resilience, um, to be actively um, sort of searching and wanting to be a place where shame doesn't live any longer. And, and I think that is, that's just a really, like those just go so hand in hand because you cannot have safety where there's shame. Yeah. Um, and I forget, remind me what your original question was. Oh, it was just, how do we, how do we do better? How do we support people better? How do we equip people with tools better? Yeah. And I mean, so I think to go along with that, you know, it's again, it's the um, piece of giving people um, sort of the the space to have feelings without having them be fixed. Right. Like recognizing that just like emotions in and of themselves um, are just they're just giving us information. Like emotions are not bad or good. They, they are there to tell us something is happening. Yeah. And when we say, oh, you feel sad about that? Well, you need to fix that. You know, right. like you need to get happy right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, that again, that comes back to that shame piece. And it says, so what it does is it doesn't allow the process to complete itself yeah. to say, because that that feeling needs to be to some extent worked through. Now, you know, I think on, on the other hand, there are times when our feelings tell us things that aren't true, and that's where it's helpful to have someone who's educated, you know, about things like emotional intelligence and emotional emotional health and trauma to be able to say, hey, what would it be like to not necessarily give our emotions um, permission to make all our decisions for us. But what if we just let them um, have a space? Yeah. And allow them to simply to be. <laughs> yeah. Because for a lot of people, what they find is that when they've had some space to work through the feeling, they, um, they can kind of come back to a place where, again, that prefrontal cortex, that higher order thinking comes back online. And often that is where, scripture can be helpful for yeah. them when they're, when they're ready. Um, or that is when someone who has wanted to give them advice could, then they could say, Hey, you know what? I'm kind of at a place where I think I might need some help. Do you think you could help? Yeah. Then they're ready to hear it. Yeah. We um, had, um, we had Mark Allen Shelsky on the show a little while back. He, he I just saw that. That's awesome. Yeah. I was going to, have you read his book? 
you know, I haven't read it, but I'm pretty familiar with his work. I want to read it. It looks, it looks great. Yeah, it's a lot about what you're talking about here of, of your emotions instead of saying, hey, we have to, as Christians, kind of get, get rid of these things of saying, hey, these are pointing us towards something. And there, I think he has this, um, this metaphor of they're the, the check engine lights coming on on your dashboard. Yeah. And you can make assumptions about what they mean, but they're probably wrong. They're just, they're just pointing you towards something, and then you can try and go figure out what they are. You know, what, mm-hmm. what it is they're pointing to. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's really just one of those things where, um, you know, I think it's recognizing that that is a part of who we are. God made us emotional beings. And so we cannot cut those parts off of ourselves without there being significant ramifications. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think that's part of the discussion, um, is how do we live whole? How do we experience life and our our relationships with people and our relationships with the in the world and our relationship with God in a whole way not just with our prefrontal cortex (laughs) and sadly you know I think there are a lot of folks who the only place they feel comfortable is trying to reason um, themselves out of anything yeah. And unfortunately, that's not, maybe not unfortunately, because I don't believe that, but I, but for those folks, I that's not going to get us where we want to go. Yeah. You know, God, I think God is calling each of us towards wholeness, towards living fully in the body and in the life that we have been given. And I think when we don't accept that, um, we're, we're going to stay stuck. Yeah. We just we just are, you know, there's yeah. no, like, again, it's like that, that very foundational principle of trauma being that avoidance will make it worse. <laughs> In a way, it's that same idea. Yeah, It's that avoidance of an experience um, will not allow you to integrate that experience or what you've learned. Um, and then you're not able to move forward hmm. because it's cut off. Yeah. If you want to connect with Andy, you can find her on social media at Andy Kolber or at her website, bravelyimperfect.com. If you want to connect with me, you can find me on social media at Robert Vore at robert-vore.com. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Do you have any closing words for folks today who maybe feel stuck? Hmm, that's a great question. Well, first of all, yes, thank you so much for having me. And, you know, I would just encourage... Um, anyone who's listening here today to just know that, you know, if, if you're looking for first steps, I think it would be to figure out who in your life um, really is safe. And I think that's a really important piece. And then, you know, if you're feeling like there are a lot of pieces uh, to your story that feel stuck, um, maybe ask for those people in your life who feel safe for help um, to reach out to professionals um, who can help you begin to get more educated with the tools to help you get unstuck. But yeah. just know you're not alone. There are so many people who've walked this path and it's so worth it. It is so worth it to do this work. Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate you taking some time and I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. Hey, thanks. You too. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH Podcast at gmail.com.
A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.